How many of you are working in some form or fashion with prep? Mm, okay, yep. Um, so our next topic will be about 45 minutes. Dr. Susan Buckbinder is here. She's from the University of California, San Francisco. She's a professor of epidemiology and medicine, and she is going to, in statistics, and she's going, she's a world's expert in prevention. She's going to review a lot of the issues and prep with a panel uh, that will now come up. Um, if your name is up here, which Dr. Wachowski is here. Um, and we will have an open discussion about this. To me, one of the conundrums is that a lot of us in the field who are treating HIV-positive patients in our clinics are starting to feel the need to get engaged with PrEP to sort of help in the AIDS epidemic. But at some point, you say, how can I do both, right? I'm on one hand seeing patients full-time who are HIV-infected, and now I'm getting involved in PrEP. So there will become an asymptote. But for those of you who are doing it, this is for you. So let's welcome Susan. Thanks, Mike. I'll wait for our panel to come up. <clears throat> yep. Is Kim here? She's in the back. Oh, there she is. Okay, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, this is my disclosure. And we're going to just very briefly talk about who's getting infected in the United States because that's important for, uh, for figuring out where should we be targeting PrEP. It's also important for your post-test, uh, uh, post <laughs> so pay attention. Um, counseling patients about how to take different PrEP regimens. We'll talk about the impact of STIs on PrEP and of uh, PrEP on STIs. And then we'll talk a little bit about U equals U. So, this is some data on the rates of diagnosis per 100,000 population among adults and adolescents. On the left are men and on the right are women. And so you'll see there's about an 80-20 split um, in, terms of numbers of, uh, in terms of the rate of new infections. You'll also see that uh, the rates are disproportionately high, particularly in black African Americans uh, in the United States. The, um, one of the challenging things is that we're seeing rises now in Latino populations and in uh, Asian populations in men. So that's something to watch out for, uh, both on your test, but also um, it's in our patient populations. We've really got to be sure that we keep our eye on the ball. And I would just say that um, earlier you heard uh, Jeff talk about um, Tony Fauci's talk about ending the epidemic now. We've seen basically no decline over the last five years in new diagnoses in the United States. And so PrEP has to be an important and critical component of what it is that we do to drive down infections. So uh, here's your first question. Um, do you start uh, PrEP on the same day or wait for test results before prescribing PrEP or something else? That's a little more like it. Listen, baby. Ain't no mountain high. Okay. So most people wait for lab results, but about a quarter of you now are doing same-day uh, prep starts. And I'm going to show you some data from CROI this year, the New York City uh, Sexual Health Clinics. 
uh, started a project where they're uh, a pilot where they were giving same-day prep starts. What they did is they screened people for kidney disease, hepatitis B infection, um, and acute HIV symptoms. If they didn't have any of those, they started immediate prep. That's shown on the left. And that was for 97% of the uh, population actually qualified for same-day prep. Only 3% had delayed prep. And then they looked at what actually happened when they got lab results back. And of the people who had immediate starts, uh, less than 1%, only four individuals, did they have to stop prep in. Two were actually acutely infected that weren't picked up on the, uh, on the rapid test that they had done in clinic, but rather with NAT testing. And then two more were uh, found to have uh, creatinine clearance of less than 60. Um, and then in the delayed prep arm, uh, only 14% were not able to start PrEP, and of the people then that were able to start PrEP, only about a third uh, actually came back within the next uh, two months. So there is some drop-off when we don't give PrEP same day, and so it is something that looks like it can be done safely. It's something we're starting to do in San Francisco, or we've been doing in San Francisco, and uh, it's something that I would encourage you all to at least consider uh, with your patients. So now I've got a question for you about when you prescribe PrEP, how do you most commonly prescribe it? Do you give a month and then require people come back for refills? Three months and require they come back? Three months but you give refills anyway? 12 months of PrEP or something else? So most people are giving three months and then requiring refills. Some are about a third are giving a month and requiring patient refills. And it, it is really important for people to come back, but we're, we're in this like Goldilocks uh, dilemma. We want to give enough, but not too much, right? And so um, you want to ensure coverage, but you want to also be sure that you can get those quarterly HIV tests in particular and STI screening. What we found in San Francisco in going through our primary care clinics was that um, we, uh, we found that when people got prescriptions of one month or less, that they were less likely to continue on PrEP. So we do need to give people enough that they can actually continue. But on the other hand, uh, about two-thirds of the PrEP intervals had HIV and STI testing done, even when we looked over a four-month period and gave like a month's, uh, a month's grace period. So we do need to try to find ways, and it's probably very individual for your patients as to how, and, and how your clinics run. What we found is also that uh, navigation, uh, I'm sorry, uh, pa panel management, Within the clinics, somebody who's actually managing getting patients back in for their quarterly tests really make, made a difference. Okay, so now we're going to start with our cases. So you have a 21-year-old woman who asks you to prescribe PrEP. She states she always uses condoms with her multiple sexual partners, but she'd like to stop using them. So what do you recommend? <laughs> okay. Um, a, you don't offer PrEP because condoms have worked for her well up till this point. You don't want to risk STIs. Uh, B is that you don't offer PrEP because it doesn't work that well in women. C is that you offer PrEP but tell her it looks, works less well if she either has uh, vaginal dysbiosis or uh, STIs. Or you offer PrEP uh, counsel that only uh, condoms are going to prevent STIs but let her make the decision about condom use. So. Hey, hey. 
Okay. So most people want to keep her, uh, want to let her make the decision about condoms. Um, so let me just ask the panel uh, if any of you have strong feelings about this. I, I would give her prep. <clears throat> She's living in Atlanta. She really needs to use condoms. <laughs> So site-specific. Okay. Um, so we do know that PrEP works in women, and I think that there's a general misconception that it doesn't work in women because many of the trials showed no PrEP efficacy for women, but that's because they weren't taking the pills. A lot of these studies were done in sub-Saharan Africa in settings in which there were lots of reasons why women were participating in the trials but not interested in taking PrEP or not able to take PrEP on a daily basis. Um, so this is data from meta-analysis that just showed uh, that you have uh, the, hi the higher the level of adherence, the higher the level of efficacy of PrEP. But what we have to remember is that PrEP concentrates at 10 to 100-fold lower concentration in vaginal than rectal tissue, and it's cleared more rapidly from vaginal than rectal tissue. And so PK studies do suggest that women need to take pills six to seven days a week in order to maximize uh, effectiveness. And we'll talk a little bit about how that differs for uh, men who have sex with men because there's more forgiveness in the rectal tissue than there is in the vaginal tissue. Um, in terms of this question of whether or not PrEP works if you've got vaginal dysbiosis um, or BV or STIs, but in this case, uh, vaginal dysbiosis, there were data from this study, which was a, a topical tenofovir study, of tenofovir gel that showed that actually the PrEP worked really well, uh, that tenofovir gel worked really well as long as there was a normal vaginal microbiome. But when there was dysbiosis, it didn't actually work, and it, it had to do with actually the bacteria and the, um, the metabolism of the tenofovir. But when you look at oral PrEP, regardless of vaginal dysbiosis, you do see that it, it's equally effective whether the, there's vaginal dysbiosis or not. So that's not, again, a reason not to give women PrEP. Um, but as Melanie points out, only uh, condoms will prevent STIs. Okay, so now we have a 34-year-old man who has sex with men with new partners approximately twice a month. He doesn't want to take a daily pill because his sexual exposures are relatively infrequent, but he doesn't always use condoms. So what would you do? Do you encourage him to just use condoms? Do you t say his exposure is relatively low, so don't worry so much about PrEP? Do you encourage him to take daily PrEP? Do you have him start PrEP seven days before his sexual episodes? Or do you prescribe what's called on-demand or two-on-one PrEP, even though it's not FDA approved or endorsed yet by the CDC? This is my guy. Okay, so we've got quite a range of uh, responses. About 40% say uh, that they use what we call in San Francisco 2-1-1 prep, but uh, another about equal amounts encourage them to take daily prep. So what does the panel think? So let's describe uh, what 2-1-1 is. So this was, a, I know you're probably gonna go to slides on it next, but it's basically if someone is having infrequent ex 
sexual encounters that are exposures is that you uh, give them a prescription and they'll t the night bef the morning before the night exposure preferably at least 12 hours take two uh, TDFFTCs and then you have the exposure that evening and then and then the next day one tablet the next day one tablet that's where the 211 comes from and i think it's a fine approach the the data there's not multiple studies but there's a nice study out of France that showed that it was relatively equal to daily prep in that setting, but it's only been done for MSM, so it's not quite ready for everyone yet. But I think it's a good option for this guy. Great. Well, the other the other thing about that study, though, it was that those folks were having frequent sex, not twice a month. Right. Well, so then you, then you end up on daily prep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think it. So from I, I wanted to vote on A and C. So I always vote okay. for condoms. <laughs> So that wasn't a choice. Okay, <laughs> good, yeah, A and C. Okay, well, so here's 211 prep. Um, you can see the smiley faces uh, are um, when they had sex. Uh, you're taking a loading dose two, uh, two to 24 hours That's before. making some assumptions, isn't it? Well, I'm just saying that's what, it's, that's what it showed. That, okay. This is their slide. Um, okay. let, let's hope it was smiley face sex. Um, and then one tablet 24 hours later, and then a tablet 24 hours after that. But we sometimes call it 21111 sex if you're, uh, or dosing if you've got multiple episodes of sex. So you keep taking a daily pill until 48 hours after your last dose. And if you've had a dose within the last seven days, you don't need the loading dose of two pills, you just take one pill. So it's, it's a little bit complex, right? It's not just take a daily pill. Um, they did find this 97% relative uh, efficacy compared with placebo in their open label uh, extension component of this. But on average, they were taking 18 pills a month, which is what Kim was saying, which is approximately a little bit more than four a week. And what we know from modeling studies from the IPREX trial and the STRAND study where people were actually getting directly observed therapy so we knew what level of PrEP they uh, had in their blood, that four days, the efficacy in four days is about equivalent to what it is in seven days. And so what we know for men who have sex with men, and this is, this is for men, not for women, not for trans women or for cis women, that four pills a day is about the same as seven pills a day. I thought I, I thought I had. Oh, yeah, sorry. So this is um, a new analysis of uh, data from the Ipergay study that did actually look at what happens for those people who were t having less frequent sex. So this is now about um, five episodes of sex a month, and what they found were no infections in that group either. It's a fairly small number. There's a pretty broad confidence interval. But um, there have now been some open-label studies of uh, some demonstration projects of 211 prep. And it appears to be also highly effective for people. But you need to, you need to um, follow some parameters. So the CDC is only continuing right now only uh, is recommending daily prep, although I think that there are considerations about whether or not um, it would, uh, what, uh, what additional data are needed to be able to recommend this, um, and it's the only licensed indication by FDA. But the IAS USA guidelines do give 211 prep as a, an alternative to daily prep, but only if you're able to take that pre-dose, which is two to 24 hours before. And what you'll hear from people who do this is that they've got a lot of different creative ways of doing it. It may be that they take the pill, wait a couple hours, and then seek somebody on, uh, 
on Grindr or some other uh, app. Or it could be sometimes they say, oh, well, we just we open a bottle of wine, relax for a little while, then we go ahead. Um, so there are all kinds of creative strategies, but they've got to take that pre-dose, and it should be at least two hours beforehand, uh, up to 24 hours beforehand. They've got to be able to take the post-doses because the pre-dose isn't enough. And then they also have to use it with all their partners. They shouldn't be picking and choosing with which partners they're using. And so I think one of the things that people are a little concerned about when looking at the Ipergay data is it was an older, very, uh, uh, ed well-educated population that were able to take this, you know, uh, relatively complex regimen. So, um, but remember that this is only recommended for men who have sex with men, not cis and transgender women, and not people who inject drugs. It hasn't been tested in those groups, and as we said, for particularly for um, for women, uh, and we'll talk about transgender women in a little bit, but for cisgender women the PK would suggest that this is not an adequate approach, and so we probably do need to be taking daily prep in that situation. This is just a head-to-head -head comparison. Who can use it? It's only been studied in men who have sex with men. Um, it can trigger a flare if you, were on, if you had chronic hepatitis B, so it wouldn't be recommended in that situation. You need to be able to plan, and it's not forgiving of missed doses in the same way that daily prep is. So again, it's gonna be, you're gonna need to tailor this for your uh, patients. Okay, our next case. A 48-year-old man who has sex with men with hypertension comes in requesting PrEP. He has multiple partners, frequent sex, frequent STIs. His creatinine clearance is 1.7. Sorry, his creatinine is 1.7. His creatinine clearance is 61. What would you do? So here are your options. You can prescribe daily TDF-FTC. You can prescribe daily uh, FTAF. Uh, prescribe every other day TDF-FTC. Prescribe 2-1-1 PrEP or tell him he should use condoms um, because PrEP isn't gonna work well with STIs. So what do you recommend? So we've got most people saying FTAF um, and a group that's uh, still recommending TDF-FTC um, with a smattering of the other responses. So what does the panel think? I think with you know CKD of this degree that you probably want to have a reduced dose or an alternate treatment of some kind rather than using the daily TDF-FTC. Okay. Any other comments? So I just want to know what his etiology is of his chronic kidney disease. So I want to look at his urine and I want to see what his trajectory is. And is it due to hyper, uncontrolled hypertension? So if he's got a trajectory that doesn't look good, I'd be really nervous yes. about giving him TDF. Okay, great. Well, so there were some data that were presented at, um, so what, first of all, what we know about uh, TDF and uh, in, and renal function is that in general, people do very well who are HIV negative on uh, TDF-FTC. The group in the Iprex-Olay study and in San Francisco Kaiser group who had a reduced GFR to start with were, uh, or uh, who developed a, a reduced GFR were ones who started with a reduced GFR or who had, uh, who were somewhat older. Uh, in Partners Prep and in the Prep Demo Project, they had the same risk factors, but also people who were smaller, 
Um, but th what they did find was that 75% of people who had a bump in their creatinine when they repeated it, it was unconfirmed. So you can do a lot of chasing of creatinines. And what they also found was that doing creatinines every six months was uh, just as good as doing it every three months, and they were chasing fewer creatinines. Uh, what about people who inject drugs? They're, well, it doesn't look like there was uh, an effect of recent IDU on creatinine in that study. Um, but again, increased age was associated with uh, reduction. And so this is somebody who you might be more concerned about giving TDF to because of their renal function. Um, in all of the studies, creatinine reverted to near baseline levels after the trial was over and rechallenge was used successfully. But we just got data from the DISCOVER trial, which has been uh, a study we've been waiting to see. It was a head-to-head -head comparison of FTAF against FTDF. There were uh, 2,700 people in each of the two arms. It took place in 11 different countries. There was a substantial uh, U.S. population. I will say that less than one, I think it was 1% were transgender and only 9% were African American. And so uh, it wasn't optimal in terms of the populations that we'd really like to know this, uh, this data in. But what they found was that they, uh, this was a non-inferiority trial and they stayed under the non-inferiority margin. So there were seven infections in the FTAF arm, 15 infections in the T uh, FTDF arm. As it turns out, there, were, uh, there was one person in the FTAF arm who was actually infected at baseline, and four in the FTAF arm, I'm sorry, in the FTDF arm who were infected at baseline. They looked at all of the infections and included those ones at baseline, but even when they did the analysis, in excluding that group, it did look like it was non-inferior. They just met the non-inferiority margin. So it looks like uh, FTAF is as good as uh, TDF, FT, FTDF in men who have sex with men. Um, it's a little harder to say in transgender women just because it was such a small uh, population. And so that is an option for people who have reduced, uh, uh, have a, an elevated creatinine or reduced uh, creatinine clearance. Um, the question about STIs and whether or not they reduce the efficacy of PrEP, there have been now a number of studies that suggest, you know, initially that was a concern that we had because of, there, you know, is it sort of going to, are you going to be able to overwhelm the effects, the beneficial effects of PrEP if you have STIs? In IPREX and Partners PrEP, they found no difference in efficacy of the, um, of FTDF in people who had STIs. And we've had now a number of open label studies with really massive levels of uh, STIs. Um, so again, that's a reason to potentially encourage condom use uh, for this patient in addition to uh, giving him uh, PrEP. But um, it does not appear to reduce the effectiveness of PrEP. The other question people raise, though, is, well, is giving out all of this PrEP actually increasing the rate of STIs? And that's an unanswered question, I would say. Um, there were actually some data that were just presented at CROI that suggests that it's not just the increased screening that we're doing, so we're picking up more cases of STIs, but that there may actually be truly an increased rate of positivity in people on PrEP, and so that, it, but it's a little bit hard to say what's chicken and what's egg because you're giving PrEP to the people who are already not using condoms or have made a decision not to use condoms, and so um, it's, it's been difficult to tease out what the impact is. What we do know is that people on PrEP really do need to be screened every three months for STIs, and that's three-site screening, 
Um, so pharyngeal, rectal, uh, and urine, and treated uh, quite, you know, make sure that you get people back in because we really have a huge, we're gonna hear more about the STI epidemic, uh, I think after this particular session, and we have a real problem on our hands, so. Um, so now we've got a 29-year-old man who has sex with men in a serodifferent relationship with an HIV-positive partner, and he's asking for PrEP. When you ask him about it, he explains his partner's been fully virally suppressed for a year, but he'd just feel more comfortable being on PrEP. So what are you going to do? Are you going to prescribe PrEP? Are you going to prescribe PrEP for now with the hope of eliminating PrEP in the future if his partner remains suppressed? Are you going to tell the patient he doesn't need PrEP because U equals U? Or What's U equals U? Nice selection of music. Okay, so the majority are going to prescribe PrEP. Um, a little uh, group is wanting to know what's U equals U. So let me turn to the panel and ask, what are you going to do? And does someone want to describe U equals U? We talked a little bit about it earlier. So he's asking about he wants to be on PrEP. Um, there's a couple of assumptions I'm going to make. One is that I'm going to have a conversation with him to explain what U equals U is. So for the 2%, that just means undetectable equals untransmissible. So if his partner remains totally undetectable, then in essence, the partner who's coming and asking for PrEP has virtually zero chance of getting infected from his partner. So I wanna make sure that he's clear on that. Once I make it clear, and I say, so what do you think? Do you want PrEP? And they say, yes. That's communicating something else to me, that um, there may be activity outside of his partner and he wants to be protected. So, yeah, I'd probably give it to him. Okay. And there, yeah, there is this idea that if people come in asking for PrEP, it's because they need it. And we're traditionally, it's, it's very difficult to get an accurate sexual history all of the time on every patient. And so um, this may be telling you something. So I just wanted to bring up the point is just because a partner had been with somebody for a long time um, that they can't go outside the relationship. So one of the first questions I ask are you in an open or closed relationship? I just had a patient two days ago that was in a partnership for 12 years and his partner just got HIV. Um, and so the issue is you can't yes. assume that duration of a relationship has anything to do um, with closed open. You just have to ask the questions. And I ask those questions every time they come in because and, and, things change. And closed and open is a really good way of putting it because sometimes monogamous, people think of it as sort of being emotionally monogamous, but not necessarily sexually monogamous. So <laughs> you, you do want to be uh, more explicit about it. Um, so this is undetectable equals untransmittable. Um, you can't transmit to your, uh, your sexual partner. As I think Melanie mentioned earlier, it's the cut point was uh, 200 for these studies. Um, HIV can be transmitted in breast milk. There certainly have been cases of that. Uh, it's probably because uh, babies are being exposed to about 150 gallons of milk. Uh, it's estimated over the breastfeeding period, which is um, substantially more than um, exposure to uh, sexual fluids. 
Um, and uh, we also, it's very interesting. This, so this, comes, this slide comes from a, a, a session that we had at Croy on U equals U that I really highly recommend. Um, Pietro Venazza started with a description of all of the data that led up to U equals U, which was really quite a, a nice summary of the data to date. Um, and then there was a, a session on clinical conundrums, and it's interesting that, for instance, we have recommendations for post-exposure prophylaxis uh, in individuals who get needle sticks, but that's not true uh, in Europe. So in September of 2017, uh, CDC came out with this statement that people who take uh, ART daily as prescribed and achieve and maintain an undetectable viral load have effectively no risk of sexually transmitting the virus to an HIV-negative partner. We don't really know about uh, injection drug use. Um, and I would just caution that when we think that condoms are the only answer, that, that condom effectiveness, when you actually look at effectiveness rather than efficacy, how it works in real world settings, it's, uh, it's not as high as we'd like to see it, and it's because people don't always use them for the entire sex act or uh, properly. Two other quick points. One is that um, we're probably not counseling our patients enough who are not virally suppressed to bring in their negative partners for PrEP. And this was data from last year's CROI, um, in which they had 918 HIV-positive men with over 1,900 HIV-negative sexual partners. 6% of the partners were taking PrEP. 67% were not taking PrEP, but they didn't need it because uh, the HIV-positive patient was fully virally suppressed. But nearly uh, a little more than a quarter of the partners of these patients who were not uh, virally suppressed were actually not on PrEP. And so we really do need to get PrEP to the partners of our patients who are not virally suppressed. The other thing is people ask about, well, I talk to all of my partners. I have multiple partners. I hook up with them. I don't really know them. But they tell me that either they're on PrEP or that they're fully virally suppressed, so I don't have to worry. These are data from uh, last year's CROI in which uh, 284 men who have sex with men were asked uh, said that they were undetectable, and then they sent in a dried blood spot. And uh, about half were um, undetectable. Another third were, had relatively low levels of virus. So it was a minority that had detectable uh, levels in blood. But what I say to patients who have really multiple partners and are just rely who they've just met, who, uh, they don't really necessarily know what, what's going on with their partners, or they say, all oh, my partners are on PrEP, why not you be on PrEP as well? Okay, next case. 31-year-old patient on PrEP comes in for his routine quarterly lab tests. His fourth-generation antibody test comes back positive, but the confirmatory test and viral load come back negative. So what do you do? Do you repeat the test but continue PrEP because you assume that it's a false positive test? Do you repeat the tests but switch over to ART for acute HIV infection? Do you repeat the tests and stop PrEP until you can determine what the infection status is, or do you do something else? We've been seeing more of these cases. It's still fairly rare, but it does come up. Okay. We've got a distribution, and let me ask the panel what you would do in this situation. Um, 
you know, I, I may be an outlier. I don't know. We'll see what the other panelists think. But I agree with the people who are wondering, do we know what the natural history of the viral load is in people with acute HIV that occurs on PrEP? And so I would be concerned that he has acute HIV with an unfit virus, potentially, and uh, stop PrEP and start him on full treatment for acute HIV until I get a little bit more data. Anyone else? I would agree. I would do the same thing. I would do the same thing. I would do something different. Um, <laughs> okay. Mostly because I'm not sure once you start him for acute HIV treatment, how do you determine what he's got? Because if you're, what you're saying is true, then you're only perpetuating the viral load being undetectable, and you'd have to, I don't know how you're going to diagnose it. I guess you get a DNA test. I personally would stop the PrEP, repeat the test, and if he's got HIV, it'll declare itself in four weeks or so and move on. Okay. Yep. And there isn't really a right answer to this. There was a great session from Jean-Michel Molina at Croy, and I encourage you to look at that webcast. He uh, showed this slide, which shows that the, you know, the eclipse phase is about 11 days. Um, then the viral RNA turns positive, and then the antigen turns positive. So sometimes when you've got, if you have a discrepant results from your, your antigen antibody test, your fourth gen test, and then the confirmatory test alone, then you can go to a viral load uh, because it may be that they're early in infection. Yes. So this eclipse phase was in people who weren't on. This eclipse phase is in people who aren't on. Prep, That's right. right? So, th so this yeah. is the classic situation. We have a different situation in people who are on prep, and we're seeing differences in the way that they evolve their positive results. So sometimes they stay antigen negative but start to turn antibody positive. Some people will do a DNA test. Some people will, uh, will do a Western blot and see if they're starting to develop bands. Um, it's very difficult to actually sort this out. And so this is, comes from Jean-Michel. And he said, basically, you've got three options. You can continue PrEP, and particularly if the person swears that they've been adherent and you think that they're, that they're being adherent, you can, you can do that. But um, you've got the risk that they will develop resistance if they're actually truly infected. On the other hand, certainly if you think that they're not adherent to PrEP, then uh, you, wanna, you may want to switch them over to ART, but you, you need to find a way to confirm the diagnosis, which is really challenging in this situation. And then the third thing is, and this is something that you can do in consul consultation with your patient. Say, look, we don't really know what the situation is. Are you willing to use condoms? Because you don't want to risk the, 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 that they're going to become infected when you take them off of PrEP. But that's going to be the clearest way for you to determine whether they're truly infected or not. And I yeah. think one other thing, just to also to explain a little bit of what I was thinking, is that we're talking about a fourth generation test being positive. That means it's either going to detect an antigen or an antibody. To me, the antigen will, if the HIV RNA is negative, I don't see any way you have an antigen that's detectable. You would probably see RNA at the same time. So then you're only talking about would an antibody response be produced in somebody who's not actively expressing enough virus to be detected. And I, I would lean more in the this direction of that's a false positive uh, fourth generation test than some yeah. biologic phenomena that's kind of tripping me up. And that is what Can we're I seeing a lot of, but yeah, please. So Mike, if we were gonna do what you suggested potentially and stop and see what happens, 
And given what Jonathan talked about, the benefits that we're seeing in Thailand of mm -hmm. starting immediate treatment, would you wait a week or two to recheck a viral load, or would you do three times weekly viral load testing like they were doing in Thailand? Right. So, so I think I, I think that um, there's definitely advantage of somebody who you just happen to catch during acute infection and you get them on treatment. But let's face it, the vast majority of people who we treat, we don't have that luxury. They're coming in mostly with chronic infection. So. Here, I'm just weighing it out. You know, if their patient's willing to come in, I'll check them more, more frequently. I think once a week is probably enough, but if they were real anxious about it, you know, I'd test them more often. But again, I think it's, you're right that you would have an advantage, but it's a, it's a risk-benefit kind of thing. Sometimes, so the other option is uh, to call the prep line and get some expert advice as well. Um, so this is a phone number that you can jot down if you're interested. It's a warm line. Um, but when you have uh, unusual test results, uh, you can at least have somebody else that you can speak about with it, uh, speak with about it. Okay, so now we've got a 28-year-old HIV negative woman in a serodifferent relationship with an HIV positive man. He's newly diagnosed and yet not stably, uh, not yet stably virally suppressed, but they want to have a baby. So what do you recommend? <laughs> Should they wait for the male partner to become fully virally suppressed for at least six months before attempting pregnancy? Should they use PrEP because it's safe periconception and in pregnancy? Don't use PrEP because its safety is unknown, so use sperm washing instead or something else. Okay, so most people want to wait for the male partner to become suppressed, but others uh, are fine using PrEP. So what do you all recommend? You know, I think that people who want to become pregnant usually do. <laughs> and that, and people who don't Sometimes want to become pregnant Sometimes even those who don't want to become do. pregnant yeah. do. <laughs> and so, you know, PrEP is relatively safe in, uh, or I should say in HIV-infected women who receive TDF-FTC, there's not been a strong signal that there's any issue with taking it around the periconception period. So to me, B would be more, more appropriate because I think that trying to convince people not to get pregnant for six months is really difficult, mm -hmm. if you're going to recommend six months. Okay. And it's, Anybody it's, else? Anyone else want to? Well, I guess I'm still concerned about... Um, that HIV can be in the seminal fluid, even though it's undetectable in the blood. Um, okay. And so there can be compartmentalization. And you're expecting the person, the partner, to use PrEP, as we talked about before, the differences in women, and to use it every day. So you're talking about that in terms of the adherence, and I'm also concerned about potential um, uh, HIV in semen. Yeah. So for me to be safe, I would want them to use two techniques. So you would use PrEP plus 
to look in the semen. When this has come up in patients that, that I'm advising either two men that want to get pregnant or whatever and the infertility docs that I've been working with, they're all getting, they're all requesting seminal samples. Okay. Um, and to make sure that there's not HIV in the, in the semen, whether or not you decide to go on PrEP or not, in terms of doing, um, to do, do something if there's an, you know, you need to do an infertility kind of in vitro kind of thing. And so that's the other option, is you're gonna do the natural way or you're gonna do something in the laboratory yeah. to be the safest. Yeah, so. Yeah. At, at what cost? Right. Well, again, it's, expensive. it's gotten cheaper. It's gotten yeah. cheaper in some instances, for, but it's, it is, there is an issue with cost. But what I'm saying is if you want to be ultra conservative. So I think with the data on U equals U, if somebody is really fully virally suppressed, they, they have found that there are times when people have blips of, of virus in the semen, but it's not clear that it's replication competent virus, and we're not seeing infections in that case. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly before the person's virally suppressed, um, they would need to be on PrEP. And whereas U equals U, we're saying really there's essentially no risk of HIV transmission. With PrEP, we don't say it's 100% because it's not 100%. We certainly have seen breakthrough cases uh, of people on PrEP. It doesn't happen very often, but we are very concerned about women needing to take it on a daily basis. So this is, again, a conversation that you have to have with your patient about what, what are they going to do? Are they really wanting to get pregnant and so they're going to go ahead and start, um, and in which case you definitely would want them on PrEP, um, or are they willing to wait? And then some people will do both, um, although others would say that with U equals U, the PrEP isn't necessary in that situation. Um, these are, this is the reason, though, why it's so important. These were some data um, that were just published. They were presented at CORI last year, and they were published uh, recently. Uh, in the partners PrEP study. So they had an HIV positive man and an HIV negative woman in, in, in these uh, serodiscordant couples. And they looked at what was the risk of HIV acquisition per sex act during early pregnancy, later pregnancy, and the postpartum period. And you can see on the right that after adjusting for the viral load, which they could do because these were serodiscordant couples, the risk of uh, HIV acquisition in pregnancy, and particularly in later pregnancy and postpartum, is quite high. So you really want to be sure that women who want to get pregnant are doing that safely and that they're on PrEP if there's a, a risk of being uh, exposed to HIV. And uh, it's a small number of women that have been reported who are HIV negative who uh, are put on PrEP, but there aren't any uh, congenital anomalies or growth issues through one year of age, so it appears to be uh, safe. Okay, now we've got a 29-year-old woman in a serodifferent relationship who would like to stop using condoms. Her partner's not virally suppressed, and she wants to know how long it will be um, before that when she takes daily PrEP before she's actually protected. So what do you tell her? Is it three days? Is it seven days? Is it 20 days? Is it 28 days? Or I have no idea. Okay, we're all over the board here. 
Um, and that's probably because we don't really completely know, but I, we can tell you what, uh, what the best, to the best of our knowledge. So does anybody want to take that question? I guess the question is where she's being exposed. Because mm -hmm. that's the other thing. We don't have good data in terms of women in rectal. So we have the, the data takes a long time in terms of develop, um, you know, yeah. vaginal levels. But do we really have good data in terms of rectal levels? The rectal levels, we do have some data in women and men. And it does appear that it, it, uh, we get it sooner in rectal tissue. So in blood, you get, um, after seven doses, 89% achieve the EC90 and 98% by the 13th dose. So what's recommended right now is for men who have sex with men who may be exposed rectally, and we don't really know about urethral exposure, but we're assuming that rectal exposure is probably the most critical. What the CDC recommends is seven days before and 28 days after. But I've told you about 211, which obviously is not nearly seven days before and uh, 28 days after. And so I think we're grappling with how do we translate the PK data and the clinical data that we have into something that we can use in counseling patients. The CDC recommends 20 days before, um, before sex, before any exposures for women. But I think in talking to the pharmacologists who were doing the PK studies, there's a growing consensus that seven days may be enough to get to a high enough level, but it takes 20 days to get up to steady state for vaginal tissue. And remember, again, that women need six to seven doses uh, a week. So when we talk about even seven days, we're talking about seven full days of, uh, of, of prep. Okay, a 35-year-old transgender woman reports that she has infrequent condomless sex and is reluctant to start PrEP because she believes PrEP will interfere with her gender-affirming hormones. So what do you tell her? Um, you tell her we have data that PrEP doesn't affect hormone levels and encourage PrEP use? Or you tell her we don't know if PrEP affects hormone levels but encourage PrEP use? You tell her we don't know if PrEP affects hormone levels, nor do we know if it works for trans women, so you just encourage that she use condoms. Or you recommend 2-1-1 PrEP so that she has less PrEP exposure. Okay, so we say that PrEP doesn't affect hormone levels and encourage PrEP use is about half, and uh, about a third are saying that we don't know if PrEP affects hormone levels. So, but there's still overwhelmingly a group that wants to recommend PrEP for trans women. So what do you all want to do? I don't know. Okay. Here I think we, we want to recommend PrEP, um, you know, and I, and I think that, a lot of data support that hormone levels are not affected, although there are a few studies that begin to suggest that they could be affected. So, you know, I think um, we, we, I certainly recommend PrEP for people because this is a group that is certainly at high risk for being um, exposed and infected with HIV. So. You know, but hormones are more important than PrEP to most people in this situation. So right. we have to take that very seriously. And I, I think that 
that what you're saying is really true, that we don't yet have really a, a, an abundance of data on this issue. What we know is that in IPREX, there were 339 participants who were identified as trans women, and they didn't see any infections in women on, who had detectable tenofovir in their blood, but only 18% had detectable tenofovir in their blood. And one of the reasons was that many of the women were concerned that tenofovir was going to affect their hormone levels. Um, and in IPREX, women on hormones were less likely to take PrEP. So there are studies planned or underway to evaluate the interaction of TDF-FTC on hormones. Um, and it looks like so far that, the, that tenofovir does not affect hormone levels. So the data that we have to date is it does not affect hormone levels, but it's still relatively, a relatively small amount of data. We're going to be getting more data in. But it does suggest that the hormones that are being used um, for gender-affirming uh, treatment do slightly lower TDF levels. Um, so the bottom line is that FTC, TDF-FTC likely works in trans women. We don't have an abundance of efficacy data either, but we do believe that it works in trans women, but we do need more data. And these are some data from a study that actually did a head-to-head -head comparison of eight cisgender men and eight transgender women and did find slightly lower levels in colon cell tissue um, with TDF. The, again, the interpretation right now is that we don't expect that that's going to substantially lower efficacy, but then the recommendation would be don't do two-on-one prep for transgender women, that they should be treated like cisgender women, that they need to take their pills every day because there may be less forgiveness uh, for transgender women. Okay. I think this is our last case. Oh, and it looks like we're out of time. So let's just do it quickly. 35-year-old man who has sex with men in a zero-different relationship comes in seeking PrEP. He states his partner's been unsuppressed and is just starting a new treatment regimen. Um, the partner had to change his regimen because of antiretroviral resistance, and he thinks he mentioned something about an M184V. I mean, I realize <laughs> that doesn't generally come up, but you might have, you might have a patient that you know has an M184V. Um, but their partner doesn't, so, and he doesn't like using condoms, so what are you going to recommend? Are you going to suggest that they use condoms until the partner's been fully virally suppressed on this new regimen? Do you prescribe TDF-FTC or t uh, TAF-FTC? Do you prescribe three-drug PEP, or do you do something else? And that's actually the question I just got on a card, so I'm glad we took care of that. Okay. Oh, it looks like we didn't get any results on this one. Let's, well, I guess we'll just move on. Um, the breakthrough infections, um, have been in people who, for the most part, except for one case in Amsterdam that we can discuss um, where drug was stopped and uh, it looked like the person was infected. Um, it has been with resistant virus, but it, this, is, uh, this is a total of uh, six cases, five cases with resistant virus out of the probably, you know, certainly tens of, hundreds of thousands of people who have been on PrEP that we've got good data on. So what would people here do? What, what, do you, what would you do uh, if you know that somebody's potentially being exposed to resistant virus? 
I mean, if it's just M184V, I, I feel okay yeah. uh, for a couple of reasons. One, there are some studies with TDF alone that are suggesting that's sufficient. So, and the other thing was we have talked about earlier, the M184V actually increases the susceptibility of the virus to TDF uh, or tenofovir triphosphate in the cell. So I, I think I'd be okay with that, relatively speaking. Great. Yeah. Any other? Okay. So let's turn to some of the questions now from the audience. Um, if somebody's had a high-risk exposure about 10 days ago and they want PrEP, how would you proceed? So it's too late for PEP, but uh, they may not yet be positive on, a, uh, on even that testing. So what are you going to do? That was a good question. I'll use that as a case next time. Wait, so they've had an exposure. So they had a high-risk exposure 10 days ago. 10 days ago. So are you going to start them on PrEP? No. Or are you gonna, what are you going to do? No, I mean, I wouldn't start them on PrEP because I think they could be in the process of seroconverting, and you're just going to uh, have inadequate dosing. So if you're going to do anything, you might give Another prevention with three drugs, but I, I don't think I'd do anything there except monitor. You'd just wait and just bring them back in. Yeah. Uh -huh. Get another viral load in a week. Yeah. 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 Okay. So it seems like there's consensus to get a viral load in a week. If a mother is HIV positive on antiretroviral treatments and undetectable and wants to breastfeed, should the baby stay on ARVs while she's breastfeeding? Mm. Hmm. So do you give prep to the baby? Don't know. Um, but I, I probably wouldn't. Um, I think the risk is very low. We talked about this a little earlier, and it's used very frequently in sub-Saharan Africa with, I think, very rare transmissions. Okay. I've got two that go back to that false positive case. If you have a patient that's got a false positive on PrEP using a fourth gen, would you continue to test the patient moving forward, and does the false positive persist? Um, it can persist. Uh, in fact, it often will persist on the same test. Sometimes you can switch the, the test itself and you won't get that same false positive. But it does make it more challenging moving forward in terms of monitoring them on PrEP uh, because you, you don't have the same tool that you normally would have. So that is challenging. Um, and then this is another one about that same case. Um, wouldn't you want to have them on ART in case they still have sex until HIV can be confirmed? Or if the confirmatory test comes back negative, switch them back to PrEP. So um, th this is the challenge. Yes, yeah, so since I took that position, yeah, the, I think the bigger risk is not that the patient really was infected. I, I would more lean towards the test being falsely positive, but by taking them off, during that time, they're no longer protected. So they could show up three weeks later infected, and you say, ah, see, they were infected, but eh, maybe not. Maybe they just got infected. So it's, it's hard, but um, you got to make a decision. And I think the equipoise that came out in the panel is the take-home message. Okay, great. And then there are two questions about women. Why does PrEP affect women differently from men? And it really does have to do with the PK and the, um, because, uh, tenofovir is rectal, it's, it's excreted uh, in, in stool, there, that there is more, and just with its uh, PK and PD, you get much higher levels in the rectal tissue than you do in vaginal tissue, 
Um, and it also clears more quickly from vaginal tissue than from rectal tissue. Just real quick, just to push back a second, I think, you know, everything you said is right. The question that I have is does that really matter when you've got systemic drug because you've yeah. protected all the other cells in the body that aren't necessarily right at the mucosal level and maybe that's enough to abort an infection. So do we know that? We, we don't really know that. What we know is that we get pretty high levels of effectiveness in women, but the problem is that most of the efficacy studies in women had really low levels of adherence, right. so it's uh, harder to actually yeah. uh, demonstrate that. Yeah. But when they do the studies where they look at, of the women who were who were randomly assigned to, to PrEP, did the women who were on PrEP, it's still over 90% when they do those analyses, um, comparing I mean, the two. Ideally, and, you'd like to do the 211 study simultaneously in high-risk men and women. Yes. With high adherence, and then if then if you had increased breakthroughs in women, then it would then you'd know support. Yeah, but there aren't any data yet on uh, two on one in women. And then there was a question about Susan. Can I ask yes. something? Oh, sorry. So one of the things that I was thinking about was, and I haven't seen any data on this. When you're talking about looking at those PK studies, um, whether or not this is done, thinking about our patients are not in isolation, and there's a lot of activity going on, in particular in the rectal tissue with yes. lubricants. Yes. And so thinking about other things that people are putting in the rectum um, and how that might affect the PKPD, yeah. you know, of this. It's a good question. I think that the PKPD studies are not done with the presence of, of lube or other, or, uh, you know, when, when people, you, you know, do colonic cleansing of different sorts. Um, we don't really have the good, good data on uh, PKPD in that situation. But I, I don't want to get off the subject of PrEP in women without saying PrEP works in women. Yes. And PrEP got a bad rap about in women because of some of the early studies where, you know, no efficacy was shown. But as Susan said, it was because large numbers of women simply didn't take the pills for a variety of different reasons. So, you know, the word kind of got out that PrEP doesn't work in women, and I think we all have to really push back on that message because it does work in women, and it works very well in women. But, you know, there are these things that we're beginning to learn about, but I think the, the take-home message is, yes, PrEP works in women, and let's be sure to tell people that. Very good. And the last question that we got was about FTAF in women, and we just don't have any data right now on FTAF in women. So our hope would be that we would actually have a study where we could look at that, um, but we don't have those data yet. Okay, thank you very much. Thank Thanks you. to the panel. Does that mean I